Worth Repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, Do210.com, Real Ale Brewing Company, and Texas A&M University in San Antonio. Welcome to the Worth Repeating podcast. The stories in this episode were recorded live at Texas Public Radio headquarters in the Malou and Carlos Alvarez Theater and Studio along the newly opened San Pedro Creek. In this episode, we bring you stories about being saved or saving. Our first storyteller is Michelle Vasquez. Michelle shares a story of a would-be stalker that captured her heart. They say love finds you when you least expect it. And in my case, it was true. It was 1986, and I was a sophomore at Stanford. I'd just finished my sophomore year, and I'd gotten an internship in San Francisco. That meant that every day I needed to commute on the bus. Well, one day, I got on the bus, and I was minding my own business. But I had the feeling that somebody was watching me. So I looked up, and there, In the aisle in the back was a man with a dark suit on and a briefcase, boring a hole in my forehead with his eyes. Well, I got creeped out. So I got off the bus early, and I started walking. And I noticed he followed me. So I started walking faster. And he started walking faster. And then I crossed the street, and he crossed the street, so I ran. I was very upset because there had been quite a few stalking incidences in San Francisco at the time, and I didn't want to be a victim. Well, it rolled off, I calmed down, the week went by, and I got invited to a party on campus. So as I enter the house and go into the living room, who do I see? The stalker. (laughs) Well, I went and gave him a piece of my mind. Who do you think you are, I said. You scared the living daylights out of me. You stalked me and followed me off the bus. To which he replied, whoa, wait a minute. First of all, I go to Stanford. Second of all, you got off at my stop. And third of all, I'd been riding the bus with you every day, but you never noticed me. (laughs) You got off the bus, you started walking faster, you crossed the street, and then you ran. I couldn't get close enough to say hello. Well, I was dazed and confused for a moment because I wanted to be angry, but all I could do was stare into his dreamy blue eyes. (laughs) So I decided to give him another chance. Okay, I'm Drew, let's start over. I'm from South Dakota, and with that silky smooth voice, that's all it took, I was smitten. (laughs) Drew was the kind of guy you could take home to mom. He was kind and generous and compassionate. And he was a Renaissance man, In one day, he'd be able to write me some poetry and at the same time develop an algorithmic model to predict behaviors. Yeah, he was smart. Well, years went by. We graduated and moved to New York City, the city of our dreams, and it was great until it wasn't. See, Drew wanted to meet with me, and we met, and I'll never forget his words. I've been diagnosed with a brain tumor. I need brain surgery. And at that moment, I was overwhelmed, and I didn't know how to react. 
So I did the only thing I could do, which was cry and tell him that we would fight cancer together. And we did. And we won. We wanted to celebrate, so we decided to get married right here at the St. Joseph's Church. And I'll never forget the intensity of our vows, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We lived these words. They weren't simply words we were repeating. We were happy to have a second lease on life, so we moved to San Francisco to start over. And life was great. We had no complaints about the life we were living. It was beautiful, until it wasn't because the cancer came back, and this time it was more aggressive. The cancer came back, and it changed the nature of our relationship, from husband and wife to patient and caregiver. Trust and compassion were the values that we valued the most. We decided to fight cancer, and we won again. Fast forward. We needed to wait fast five years before we would find out if he was truly going to be cancer-free. And so we waited patiently, and that tested the limits of our patients. We waited year after year, and finally went to the doctor in the hopes that he would tell us something good. And we jumped for joy when we heard, Drew is cancer-free. Yes. Well, we didn't know what to do with ourselves, so I sent him off with his buddy to have a beer. And I went off and to make phone calls and to let family know what we were up to. Well, I got into the apartment and the phone rang and I was so excited to tell whoever that Drew was cancer free, but I was interrupted and I heard a voice say, we're in an ambulance, we're taking Drew to the hospital, he's had a stroke. We had been through so much, it wasn't fair. Drew was sent to a rehab hospital for six months. He was confined to a wheelchair and couldn't walk and had trouble speaking. He hated the hospital. All he wanted was to sleep by my side, and the hospital wouldn't allow it. But with some cajoling and those baby blue eyes, <laughs> guess who won that argument? <laughs> so for six months, I slept in a hospital bed with my husband. Through it all, cuddling in the midst of, of nurses and doctors. We had to give up our privacy because we did. So then we went on and we got out of the hospital and we went home and we had to learn how to do everything again because the situation was different this time. And in that process, we learned the true meaning of intimacy, compassion, and patience. As we moved forward, we would spend every day together holding hands and just spending time together, enjoying the simple pleasures of life. And then, one day, we were holding each other, and he died in my arms. And I remember his last breath leaving his body, and it was surreal. See, I couldn't save Drew from cancer. He rescued me. He saved me from a life worth, he saved me, he saved my life, and he gave me purpose. 
It was through Drew that I learned the, the meaning of commitment, patience, integrity, compassion. And for this, I'm very grateful. So with that in mind, I repeat our vows for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Our next storyteller is John Weber. John shares a story about his need for speed and how it was just what the Pope ordered. Before we start the seven minutes, though, I would like to give a shout out to everybody here who's on their Valentine's Day. It's a great day for everybody. And it's my 35th wedding anniversary with my lovely wife. I love you, Carrie. All right, now let's start the clock. Boom. Hi, my name is John Weber. I'm ham radio operator WB5YQC. We, <laughs> thank you. So here in San Antonio, we're a military town USA, right? And so we have a whole lot of people that are either active or retired military that have radio background, electronics background, engineering background. And because of that, we have about 1,500 ham radio operators in San Antonio. We are considered one of the most well-oiled ham radio communities in the United States. In 85, we found out that they wanted us, the ham radio community, to work with the Pope when he came in 87 to visit. So we said, heck yeah, great test of our equipment and everything else. So we go to it. 86, they go and they ask me to be in charge of the communications for the papal visit. I'm honored, heck yeah, jump in with both feet. 87 rolls around, meeting or two before the big event. We're at the Red Cross building, Secret Service comes in, and they say, well, I'm sorry, but John Weber can't be in charge of the communications. All hell breaks loose, expletives everywhere, and finally someone from the city Management goes and asks one of the guys, hey, what's going on? Why? And they go, well, Mr. Weber has too many speeding tickets over 100 miles an hour, and we don't think that he should be up there on the stage with the Pope. Fuck. I'm out of a job. So we found a replacement. Okay, great. You know, and he did an excellent job. But uh, everybody was set. We had 150 ham radio operators working that event on September 13, 1987. Uh, hottest day of September 1987, 97 degrees, with all that fun humidity, 350,000 people joined us to party, okay? Five buses of ham radio operators going in at 2.30 in the morning to go, and everybody had to be in specific locations. That's the thing about when you do these big events with major characters. <laughs> Everybody is spot and you can't move, except me. I didn't know what I was going to do. So we get in, and I'm at the Red Cross tent, and I'm thinking, what the heck am I going to do? I look over here, and there's a golf cart. <laughs> and I look over here, and there's an EMT that's just twiddling his thumbs. I said, hey, man, let's go get some shit done. So he goes, yeah, yeah. So everything, all his gear goes into the golf cart. I commandeer an ice chest from the Red Cross tent, and off we go. This dirt that this event was held on was all offset, big rocks, big dirt 
clods. They had clear cut, and there were sticks that were that big around and about that long that were all over the place like landmines. We were instantly busy. Everybody's getting cut up. People, are, knees are all... The, so we're speeding around all over the place. Go back in, get more supplies from the Red Cross tent, come out. Go in, come out, speeding everywhere. Mass starts halfway through the event. We get on the radio that a woman has broken her water in the red zone. And the red zone is a is an eight-foot tall chain link fence that surrounds the Pope. And all the dignitaries are in there from all over the world. Well, this woman was in there to get her kid blessed by the Pope. There were a lot of them, too. And oh, by the way, this is what I wore. This is it, man. I, I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to show everybody how it looked because we knew it was going to be hotter than hell, and this is what we did. And the original radio. <laughs> so I look at the EMT, and we're, okay, we're there. So how many people, clap your hands if you were at the papal event. Okay. Do you remember that little golf cart screaming across the, that was me. So we get there, and we're at the, we're, she's in an aisle seat. It's great. I think we're going to go in, get her, and out. Secret Service guy's there, and he won't open the gate. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to get her. He goes, no, we can't do that until the mass is over. So I go, and I said, okay. Left-handed here. What's your name? <laughs> and what's your Secret Service agent number? And he goes, why do you need all that? I said, well... If the baby dies, or if the mother dies, or if they both die, and the media wants to know who did it, I'm going to give them your name. <laughs> About five seconds, it's open. We had Red Cross people already were with her, so I radioed up that I was going to bring her out. And so they brought her up, got her on the cart, sent her off. Uh, in that time frame, we had had the modulants turn on its engine, get the air conditioning running, threw her up there, shut the doors. And off we went. We were the only people that were mobile, remember. Everybody else is fixed. So the masses ended, and the tens of thousands of people that came in on via bus were dropped off at spaces all over the place. So let's just say it was Wonderland was over here. Everybody that got dropped off from Wonderland was supposed to go back to that exact same spot. Well, no, Wonderland then, via made a choice, not a good choice, didn't tell anybody, Macrelis is over there now, Wonderland's over here. So you had thousands of people that had been in the sun all day, dehydrated, and the word on the radio is that some people were stopping sweating. That's heat stroke. Once you start getting that, next thing you go, you pass out, and after that you die. So we go out there and, and we, it is bad. So we scream back and we went to the Raspa area. So they had this huge Raspa area, and there were bags of ice lining the street. So we go, and we grabbed all these bags of ice, and there were two uh, privates with a six-by army truck. And we said, hey, guys, throw every bit of ice that you can on here and go out there and just start spreading the ice around. And they threw the bags out, and people started, you know, sipping on the ice. We didn't lose a single person. Um rescue. I think I was. I was rescued from being up on that stage. I got to do what I do best, speed. 
Call to action, though. Here we are, 37 years, 36, 37 years later. We don't know who that child was that was born on the papal site. So my call to action to everybody here, let's go and find out who this child was. We have the 40th anniversary of the Pope visiting San Antonio. What is more puro San Antonio than a child being born in front of the Pope? <laughs> so that's what happened at the papal visit in 1987. I was uh, happy to be able to give this story to you guys. Uh, worth repeating, has been around a long time. I've been watching it grow, and I think it's great that, I mean, we've got almost 200 people in here tonight. So thank you to Tori and the group, and KSTX and TPR and KPAC here is another brother station. Uh, they do great work. So I appreciate you listening to my story. Thank you very much. Our next storyteller is Dana Brodsky. Dana shares a story about the importance of providing a safe space for everyone, no matter what their vice might be. So I am a nice corporate lawyer lady now. <laughs> People are sometimes surprised to find out that when I was a freshman in college, all of my friends were junkies that I met on the streets of the East Village. <laughs> I had moved to New York to go to NYU, but I was really bad at making friends in class, and I had no money. So this was like the perfect solution. These kids were really easy to become friends with because they were always just kind of hanging around outside on the sidewalk. Like, you didn't have to be invited. And, and they didn't spend money on anything but heroin. And I didn't do drugs. I didn't even drink or smoke then. I just really enjoyed their company. Um, <laughs> they were um, funny and smart, and they were all kind of about my age. And uh, they had really good stories to tell. And I really appreciated being able to just sit around in a park for free all day, <laughs> hanging out with them. <laughs> um, the fact that they were all heroin addicts never really intervened that much in my relationship with them. I mean, I did have to get used to them nodding out mid-sentence every <laughs> once in a while. But other than that, it usually wasn't an issue. Until one day, I was hanging out with my friend Peter and his friend Nick, and we were in this lounge that was off of the lobby of my dorm. So you kind of had to walk past the security desk, but you didn't have to sign people in, which is good if you're trying to hang out with homeless drug addicts, for example. <laughs> Um, so we're in this lounge, and Nick tells us he's getting clean. He's picked up some methadone, and he is kicking his heroin habit. And we're like, good for you, Nick. That's awesome. And then Nick goes to the bathroom. And then a few minutes later, Peter goes to the bathroom. And then I'm kind of sitting there for a while by myself before finally I'm like, where are these guys? So I get up to go investigate. And just as I'm getting to the bathroom door, 
they come out and immediately I know that something is wrong. Nick is high, he's visibly high. But Peter, and by the way, Peter was like half the size of Nick. And Peter is, he looks like a zombie. He's staggering, his eyes are glazed over, he's drooling, almost foaming at the mouth. <laughs> and I look at Nick and I say, what the hell, man? I thought you were getting clean. And he says, well, yeah, but I had one bag left and we split it. Which, if you don't know, is the most junky answer to that question. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm getting clean just after this last hit. Um, <laughs> So um, instinctually, I'm like, I got to get this guy out of the building. I mean, I was pretty young at the time. I didn't really think things through very well. But I let junkies shoot up in the bathroom of an NYU dorm. <laughs> like, I could have been expelled or kicked out of the dorm. And so um, I see he's still on his feet. So I decide to do this weekend at Bernie's thing and just start pushing him out of the building. Um, we have to, I push him past the security guard trying to pretend like everything's normal and we get him out uh, the front door and just around the corner, just out of view of the security guard where he collapses on the ground. Now, it's the year 2000, I didn't have a cell phone, some good Samaritan called 911, I guess. And while we were waiting for the ambulance to arrive, Nick, <laughs> He was so tall and cute, and I kind of had a crush on him. And he bends down, and he grabs me by the shoulders, and he looks me in the eyes, and he says, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but I can't be here when the cops show up. And he takes off. <laughs> so there I am. I'm 18 years old. I'm standing there with my friend, comatose on the sidewalk. The EMTs show up, and they are being so mean to me. They're yelling at me saying, what did he take? You know, and I'm like, oh, God, they think I'm like his junkie girlfriend. Like, this is a panic in Needle Park or something. Uh, and so I kind of had to set them straight, and I say, um, you know, I, I don't know what he took, and like, stop yelling at me. I'm just his friend, you know? Um, so they let me go in the ambulance with them, and while we were in there, they did this thing where if you've ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction, you know the scene where they have to revive Uma Thurman after she has a drug overdose, and they take that big needle full of adrenaline, and they jam it in her heart, right? So that's what they did to my friend. I mean, it wasn't as dramatic as in the movie. He didn't wake up all of a sudden and go like, like that. But he, he didn't have a pulse, and then they did that, and he had a pulse, so it worked. Um, and uh, so then we make it to the hospital, and again, people are being so mean to me. I really started to understand how you are treated when people think that you're a drug addict. It's not nice. Um, like I asked the doctor, um, you know, is my friend gonna be okay? And he just has like no bedside manner whatsoever. And <laughs> he says, well, he might never wake up. And if he does, he might be brain damaged for the rest of his life. Well, I mean, he woke up a little while later and mm, he was fine. Yeah. I mean, he was a little groggy, but he was fine. Um, 
So then we kind of spent the rest of the day in the ER together while he was recuperating. And it was actually kind of a nice moment for me personally, because um, I was normally the low man on the totem pole in that social group because I didn't do drugs. So I was left out of a lot of stuff. So here was like the one time that I got to have some like one-on-one -on -one time with my friend. And I was kind of like the big hero of the day. Um, and uh, it was really nice. And I thought to myself, like, mm, I don't regret becoming friends with junkies. <laughs> Not that bad. Um, and um, so everything turned out fine that day. And then about a year later, he overdosed again. But I wasn't there. He was in a room full of other drug addicts who either um, didn't care enough or weren't with it enough to get him help in time, and he died. And so I learned an important lesson then at uh, 19, which is that um, you can try to be a hero and save people in the moment when something bad happened, but um, ultimately you have to accept that you cannot save people from themselves. Our final storyteller is Vanessa Seiler. Vanessa shares a story about how sometimes there are more important things than a race. All right, so one Sunday summer morning a few summers ago, me and my boyfriend at the time were at his house in the morning getting ready for this ridiculous 10-miler race or some other such nonsense. And while he's going through his just ridiculously long um, pre-race routine, you know, blending things and changing his running shoes a million times and asking me over and over and over again if I want a cliff bar, which I don't. <laughs> so I decide I'm going to take the dogs outside one last time. He's got two big German shepherds. I'm going to take them out one last time for a potty break before we leave. So we go outside. They're chasing balls, chasing each other, they're living their best lives. Until the demon spawn dog from next door starts yapping and barking at us, and it's super annoying, so that promptly ends our playtime. I heard the dogs inside and finished getting ready for this race. So we take off, the boyfriend and I, we're driving down Blanco Road toward 410, and we're coming up on that really wide spance of road in front of Holy Spirit, and what do we see but this little chunky nugget of a dog crossing the street? And of course, I'm like, oh, this dog, it's early in the morning, but there's still traffic and it's by itself and it's, you know, six inches off the ground. What are we going to do? So he slows to a crawl and looks at me and says, so what do we do? I'm like, we get the dog. And he's like, well, he points out that we're likely going to miss the race. And I'm like, ah, I don't care about the race. Because one, I was really only doing it because there were tacos at the end. And two, the little chunky nugget dog. So he pulls into the center lane. I scoop up the dog and hop back in the car. And we get on the road to go find the nearest vet clinic so that we can get them to run a chip, see if she's got a chip and see if there's, you know, got, if there's people attached to this dog. So I've got this sweet, chunky nugget little dog, and, you know, she's a 
hybrid Chihuahua San Antonio special, you know, one of those. You know the ones. She's curled up in my lap, drifting off to sleep. She's got this gray snout. She's an old girl. She has sweet brown eyes. And the whole, you know, it's, I've had this dog in my lap for two minutes, and already I'm like, oh my gosh, this girl is so sweet. She's, you know, I'm secretly hoping, well, if you don't find her parents, then I will take her. She's going to fit in marvelously with my old lady chihuahua dog and my other dogs. And what kind of bed am I going to get her? And what kind of toys does she like? Does she need special food because she's old? So all of this is I'm playing in my head as we pull up to the vet clinic. But it's closed. Because mind you, it's about 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Because <laughs> again, crazy race. Um, so we get back on the road and go to the nearest um, vet clinic. And alas, it's open. Because secretly, I don't want to find this dog's parents. I want this dog. I've already, I've named her. She is Lucy. She is beautiful. I know what kind of collar she's going to have. It, it's, I'm planning her life together. So, get out of the car, I carry Lucy inside, because you know we're like this now. And the vet tech, so we explain to the, our plight to the vet tech, and so he leaves to go get the um, chip gun, and he comes back and scans her belly, and alas, she has a chip. Inside, I'm screaming, no! But, you know, on the outside, I'm pretending to be relieved. Um, so, for privacy reasons, as I'm sure you can imagine, you, the tech can't just hand over people's names and their phone number for us to call and do whatever we want. So he's got to make the phone call and try to get in contact. So he tells us to wait outside while he does the deed. So she's sitting on my lap. I'm whispering sweet nothings into her ear about her new home and her new fur brother and sister. And we're out there maybe about 10 minutes or so. And then he comes out and he's like, well, okay, so I got a hold of someone the chip is tied to a number and a person, but the guy told me, um, so the chip is registered to a male dog, we'll call him Spot. Well, the guy on the phone, this Lucy is clearly a girl, as I've already said, so the guy who um, the vet tech was able to get a hold of said, yeah, me and my wife did have a little boy dog named Spot, but he's dead. He died like two years ago. So... Obviously, something is wrong, but there isn't a whole lot that we can really do about it at this moment. So we decided to just take Lucy back to the house, and then we'll figure it out from there. So we get there, take her to the backyard, try to snap a couple of cute pictures so we can post it on social media. And we're posting it on Pabu, Snackstore, Facebook, you know, the works. And Lucy is over by this one particular side of the yard, and she just won't stop sniffing along the fence line. And, you know, I'm telling her, come to mama, Lucy. You know, come with me. Be with me. You love me. And... <laughs> but she just won't stop furiously sniffing this one side of the yard. So then I hear it. And remember when I mentioned the demon spawn dog from next door? Well, this, what I did not mention was that this dog has the most irritating bark in the, uh, in the world. It's like this screechy, moany caw. It's just awful. And the dog barks all the time at night and in the morning, and it's, it's terrible. It literally haunts my dreams. And 
I I look at her because I didn't see her bark. I just heard the bark. And I'm like, well, surely that's the demon spawn dog from next door. And then she does it again. And I, well, I, I think she does it again. Boyfriend looks at me and he's like, did you hear that? I'm like, of course I heard it. It's the most annoying bark in the world. It's like, but we didn't see her. We only heard it. So we're not sure. So we're just watching. We're like, come on, come on. You can bark, Lucy, you can bark. And it's not working. So we go back to trying to post and then it happens. She barks again. We both see it. And it is indeed the most irritating bark in the world. <laughs> So my boyfriend calls his neighbor and is like, hey, Alice, is your dog in the backyard? Now, mind you, I've never seen this dog either. So I didn't know. I only heard it. So he calls, calls Alice. She's like, well, I don't know. I let her out about 6 a.m. this morning, but I don't think she's asked to come back inside. Let me go check. Well, there's no dog in her backyard. So, of course, she runs over as I'm mourning the loss of this dog because... We had a life built, and we were going to live this life. But sometimes when you try to rescue people, or dogs, they don't need to be rescued. That's my story. Thank you. That's it for part one of the Worth Repeating podcast, Rescued. Tune in next week for part two. You can get ticketing information for our next live event by visiting tpr.org backslash WR or submit a story you'd like to tell. We only have two more live events left. If you know someone with a great story to tell, tell them about Worth Repeating. Worth Repeating returns on March 14th and the theme is covers. Books, magazines, or newspaper covers, whether you're covering for a friend or covering the spread, we want your stories about covers. Worth Repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, Do210.com, Real Ale Brewing Company, and Texas A&M University at San Antonio. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Tori Poole. Thanks for listening.